0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. I went out this morning and I don't think I had a coat on. And then came home and was looking for several. It's a very uneven weather curve today. And to explain it all, Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, Global News. He's here
1: now. Anthony, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well. It's been a busy couple of days trying to track this front and everything that's associated with it but uh boy big swings uh, have occurred and are going to continue as we go towards the next couple of days all right
0: so uh, i'm sure many people are asking uh what's happening what are we going through
1: yeah that front came through in a hurry the temperature dropped about 10 degrees in uh less than half an hour and that was without anything but a wind shift a change in direction we've had gusts in that 60 to 80 kilometer per hour range. And that's going to continue into the evening. We're now seeing it cold enough across the region so that it's flurries that are falling. And we may Hmm. get a few more of those, but for the big accumulation, it's lake effect. And that's going to be to the west and north through the night and into the day tomorrow.
0: So, um, uh, from what I understand, this is uh, north and south colliding, the winds, and we just happen to be in the middle. Uh, and obviously, El Ninos and climate change involved here. I'm assuming. So, what? How do you explain what is happening?
1: Yeah, I mean, a good example of the wind flow early this morning when it was clear, there was a bit of a, a haze, and some people were saying, "Oh, that looks a bit different. Why is the sun re- the sun's yeah. rays reflecting differently?" That was smoke. That was Texas panhandle wildfire smoke from the crazy uh, blaze that's been going on there for a couple of days. So when you look at that wind flow from Texas to southern Ontario uh, in a matter of a day or two, it was very fast moving, upper level smoke was uh, something that you don't I've never seen in the month of February around here. Uh, And now we're getting uh, our northern Canada air, which is coming right in. And uh, that's the reason for uh, it being much colder. And uh, of course, with no ice on the lakes, it's been such a mild February, the warmest on record. Uh, That's leading to lake effect snow at an unusual time of year as well.
0: I remember that this morning, Anthony, getting up and thinking, why is there such an orange glow to the moon and the reflection it's leaving on the earth? But there you have that. That wind came up that quickly, brought that up so fast from Texas.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It was just for a few hours uh, and now it's already off towards the province of Quebec as the front uh, is still yet to go through that region. But it's just incredible that all this weather is related. And you mentioned El Nino. Yes, El Ninos are typically mild and uh, have less snow around here but not like this. This is something more than El Nino. And that's where the climate change uh, plays in. Maybe other factors that we don't even really fully grasp, but there is a lot going on. and There were monthly records. February temperature records set in the province of Quebec in uh, about 20 states south of the border. So this extends into Mexico as well. It is just very unusual for this time of year. All right.
0: So try to predict, give us an idea what's happening in the next couple of days.
1: Well, if you you don't like the parka, the scarf, the gloves, uh, you'll only need it for the rest of today and tomorrow. Tomorrow we're below seasonal, likely staying below freezing, uh, but the sun will be out again. It won't be a bad day at all, uh, just more typical that we're not used to. Uh, And then that's it. By Friday, we're back into this spring pattern, and it's going to continue through the weekend into next week, likely through the middle of March. So high temperatures in the double digits, overnight lows, near freezing or above, uh, that is sounds great, sounds fine and dandy for, for most of us. But if you're a farmer, if you're uh, somebody who has uh, mm. maybe something to do with the wine industry, a lot of these buds and, and leaves that are going to come out and flowers – it's way too early. If we have a cold outbreak later in March, there's going to be some repercussions. So uh, there's some, some bigger term issues that are, are going to have to be dealt with in the weeks
0: ahead. And as you mentioned, we always know we have a great possibility of getting another blast between now and April. Are you, so you're predicting the mild weather to continue through March. We're going to have a mild March?
1: Yeah, at least uh, our models are are fairly high confidence out through the middle of the month now, or at least March 10th. So uh, by then, if it does snow, and I still expect us to get at least one more snowstorm, Uh, It has a hard time sticking around with that higher sun angle. So don't take off the winter tires just yet. I know it's tempting, but uh, at least for the next 10 to 15 days, uh, what you saw early this morning is what you get. What you have this afternoon is is something that is is not going to be around very often. Will it leave as fast as it came in,
0: Anthony, this cold weather?
1: Yeah, that, that's what's uh, so remarkable. This blast comes through here, but it doesn't have the staying power. The overall pattern hasn't changed. So uh, Arctic air, number one, it it doesn't have uh, the snow cover to really have the same impact that you would typically get in late February. Cold winds directly from the Arctic, you would expect these temperatures to be much colder instead tonight we're basically back down to seasonal that's it so that's one thing uh but then as those winds change direction again uh, all that warmth comes back there's a high fire risk in texas again so we may be repeating this uh by early next week as the next front comes along anthony farnell with us chief
0: meteorologist for global news watch global tonight for more on all of this anthony thanks for the ride much appreciated
1: good luck (laughs) thanks i won off (laughs) (laughs) i hear you
0: City councillors are opposed to a developer's pitch to demolish a 123 123 uh, year old downtown Hamilton church to make way for residential towers. They've told city staff to issue notice of the city's plan to protect uh, Philpot Memorial Church on York Boulevard under the provincial heritage uh, legislation. Empire Communities hopes to build a to build two 30 story residential towers uh, with about 700 units and a commercial space on the property right across from First Ontario Centre. To talk more about all of this john paul danko with his counselor ward 8 city of hamilton and here now john paul danko thank you for the time hope you're doing well
2: i'm doing really well and the intro song has me thinking about something about mary so i'm gonna have to put that on my uh, movie <laughs> <list> for, uh <laughs> there, that's for this weekend
0: i know and it, yeah it's it's I, I forget what movie it's from but anyway um uh, what are the city's options here what are the options uh, tell everybody what this is about
2: Well, from time to time, uh, when developers own a property, there is uh, a heritage component to that property. So in this case, there's a a church that was built in 1904 that happens to be part of the site that they own. So as part of their developed proposal, they they wanted to just salvage a few items from that building, but to actually demolish the rest of the church in order to make way for the uh, condo development. it is a, a fairly significant heritage building so city council uh well through the through the heritage committee they made the recommendation council really just approved it uh, that the the most of the church itself be designated as a designated heritage site, so that would limit what the developer is able to do on that site and most likely would take you know a full-scale demolishment and just build a condo on top of it off the table. They would have to go through some sort of adaptive reuse for that portion of their property.
0: And what does that involve? What is what, what? What's the what's the conflict here? I mean, it, it, can you save part of it? Because I guess a tech study said that there was the facade was not savable. So, how much of it is actually savable? Do we know?
2: Well, there's different opinion, opinions on that. You know, I'm a structural engineer, and there's always different uh, when you do an evaluation, depending on your client, uh, ways of interpreting things. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the cost. So whatever rehabilitation is necessary, obviously, it's much more uh, costly in the short term anyway uh, to rehabilitate rather than to to just demolish. But I think, you know, from my perspective anyway, it kind of speaks to what our priorities are as a city. And when we have these really important heritage features, heritage structures in our city, they're irreplaceable. Once they're gone, they are gone forever. And I think some of the mistakes in the past or, you know, when you look at some of those old photos of Hamilton from uh, 100 years ago or, or even 50 years ago, um, you know, that the attitude at the time was just urban renewal, knock it down and build new. And I think we're trying to learn from maybe some of those mistakes that were made in the past.
0: And, you know, uh, I, well, I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I would agree with that wholeheartedly. However, there's some times when it is of worth and of value and of times where it's just delay. So here again, where is the solution? Where's the developer on this? Where are they? Uh, how are they coming to terms with this? Where is the compromise?
2: So the. City announced the intention to designate this particular, most of that the particular church as a heritage property. So, so once, have, that
0: hap- once that happens, yeah. then you can't touch it. Is that accurate?
2: So it will then have the de- designation under the Heritage Act. So it's not that you can't do anything; it's just that it has to respect the integrity of that st- structure as, as a heritage property. So, adaptive use, reuse is still still certainly possible but it means just means that developers have to be a bit more creative and you know in terms of building you know a 30 story tower on the same footprint that's likely not possible <laughs>
0: um you know what uh, what c- citizens are saying here counselor it's like well uh, we can't build here because it's a heritage site we can't build here because it's a parking lot so uh at the end of the day like how are citizens supposed to process this because it seems we're living in a world of extremes
2: yeah and I think there's some nuance that is important, and we don't ever want to use heritage as a roadblock, just to block development. And I don't think that's what's happening here. The same thing with uh, some of those other you know properties. That each development is unique, and not all development are equal, and not all developers are the same either. So, as we you know review these projects, there are differences that do have to be taken into account depending on the property who's building it and uh, what it is that they're ultimately going to be uh, providing to residents.
0: Um, Many may sit around and listen to this and say, that's nice and that sounds really, really good, but here we are five years later and everything on that block looks exactly the same.
2: Yeah, and that's certainly a risk. I mean, the the developers, when they purchased this property, it was only purchased a few years ago, um, knew that it had a heritage building on it and and there would likely be protections. I mean, um, so hopefully they went into that with eyes wide open and have some contingency plans. It's not unusual. You know, we know the uh, the, the Connolly condo tower that was proposed on, I think it's on John Street South, where, you know, three quarters of the church was demolished and just the, the front was left standing. Those are kind of some of the mistakes in the very recent past that we want to avoid. Um, and at the same time, we want to work with all the developers throughout the city city to make sure that uh, we're not inadvertently getting in their way to get projects built that are financially viable.
0: Again, um, you know, uh, from a citizen perspective, um, we can't build here, we can't build there. Where do we build?
2: Well, there, there's... Uh, a lot of problems. But seriously,
0: counselor, think about yeah. that. We can't build here because it's a heritage site. Then the polar opposite, we can't build here because it's a parking lot. And to which my, for both these issues, is compromise. You can't tell me that it's either one or the other for the parking lot or the housing complex. You can't tell me it's either one or the other for the church situation. But boy, oh boy, we can't seem to find the center in any of these discussions.
2: Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think it's the the lack of nuance in some of these discussions that uh, is it, frustrating for everybody. You know, in terms of the parking lot, two-thirds of that parking lot remains a parking lot. So I, I think there is a compromise there. And I think the same thing for this property that we're talking about, about two-thirds of that property is not designated. That is, you know, open for any kind of development. Um And that part of that compromise might be what the form and the scope of that development is, that it may be higher than it would otherwise be, or the Unimix, things like that. So there's definitely compromises that are available. Um, and those are the kinds of the kinds of discussions that happen oftentimes with staff uh, when we get into the actual applications that, unfortunately, you know, don't don't often make it into the newspaper or on the radio.
0: Let me say this though, and, and I understand you know you're doing what you have to do here. But if I was to open the phone lines right now and say, how many people think that in, f- in the next five to ten years that this intersection? or this lot really has remained unchanged, I bet you a majority of people would say, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. So again, whether it's parking lot or housing, whether it's this or it's that, in the end, it's nothing. So, you know, everybody's not frustrated. The people who tried to stop it or delay it are quite happy. And I think that's where the frustration lies uh, within the city and and its citizenry. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Oh, I do agree. And, And I think the last thing that we want to do, especially as a municipality, is to to block projects from moving forward without, uh, you know, there there being very good reasons for some of those concerns that are raised. So, you know, I do understand the cynicism in, in Hamilton. We we haven't had a great track rec- track record, to be honest, on on some of the development. But I am really excited about downtown and and this project in particular is right across the street from Cops Coliseum and and all of the redevelopment that's going to be happening there in the next few years. So it is, uh, you know, I, I'm really hopeful that in the next uh, three to five years we'll see some really exciting things happening. In in the downtown
0: core here's hoping and you know what i don't think it's really cynicism i think it's reality for a lot of people john yeah, paul danko with his counselor award eight city of hamilton thank you so much be well
2: Anytime, thanks for having me
0: on, Scott. Mitch McConnell, the longest-serving Senate leader in history, who maintained his power uh, through lots of changes in the Republican Party for almost two decades, is going to step down from the position in November. You might remember uh, a couple of times when uh, on TV last year, in, in front of uh, uh, the Senate and such, just kind of would gap out, just stop talking, and and kind of black out for a period of time, and it would have to be helped by aides in order to to. to, uh, you know to regain his train of thought and such and many were concerned about his health i mean let's be honest the guy's 82 and uh and and still a a stressful position to be in as we look at both of the presidential candidates whether it's biden or trump i mean you got to think is there is this the best that the united states can do but i guess we could all say that couldn't we you know considering there's got to be so many more young and -and up-and-coming people that uh could step into other uh either role so uh, either way he has decided to make the uh, move and step down let's bring in brian j karam journalist author white house correspondent for playboy political analyst with cnn and with us now brian thank you for the time i hope you're doing well doing well scott how are you doing so far so good so we've talked about mitch mcconnell in the past he's had a couple of situations where he's kind of blacked out while uh speaking to uh the press and such what are your thoughts on this as you look back
3: uh, it's, you know, I, I, it's funny that you asked that. He was the very first politician I ever interviewed outside of my own family. It was in 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, I, I was told the day before I went to interview him that, uh, there's only one thing, you know, need to know about Mitch McConnell. And I said, what's that? And he goes, my, my uncle who knew him well said he's about one thing and one thing only Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Um, He, I, nothing anyone has ever said to me before or since has been more damning, cutting and an accurate description of McConnell. Uh, Mitch McConnell is a pariah. I'm glad to see him go. I'm afraid of what comes after him. He has been a liar. Uh, he's never been honorable, professional, or there's nothing redeeming about the man privately or professionally. So good riddance to bad rubbish.
0: So so your first impression uh, hasn't changed, or things haven't changed much from your first impression of him.
3: Nah, he was, look, he was never the author of any major piece of legislation. His greatest victories came in helping to appoint conservative judges to federal vacancies and guiding the actions of a party that became increasingly obtuse, morally bankrupt, and power mad. The Republican Party today resembles its chief architect, Mitch McConnell. And the fact that they're forcing him out is just delicious irony
0: that's interesting brian because again obviously he and donald trump don't get along as much now um the whole election thing mitch did not side with the with the president and saying that it was uh, all a fake and all of that sort of stuff so but you're saying that he is responsible for example uh, the, a candidate such as donald trump are, are, is he responsible for the direction this party has gone in
3: yeah, he's it. Look, he's the here, and here's the thing to keep in mind you want to know who the real architect of the Republican Party is, although he could never get elected as a Republican. Day was Ronald Reagan in 1984. Ronald Reagan's running for re election, and he uh, had one guy who came into office on his coattails in the Senate that was Mitch McConnell. Hmm. Mitch McConnell, until that point in time, had been a moderate, he, he uh, supported unions, abortion rights. He had a human's uh, rights commission. He was uh, listening to women's rights. He was considered by all, anyone who talked to him, a moderate and actually more progressive than many Republicans. But as soon as he got into power, he drifted to the right and joined Ronald Reagan. He got into office based on one ad that was a lie. He was running against a Democrat named D Huddleston and created a television ad where a bunch of coon h- uh, hounds and hunters were running through the underbrush with where's our representative D Huddleston where's D Huddleston uh, and, and saying that Huddleston was never around to cast a vote and was abandoning you know Kentucky and the so fact of the matter is he had a 94% attendance rate one of the best in Congress it was a lie and and he got elected, McConnell got elected on that lie and has been lying to the American public ever since.
0: So you were talking about what comes next. What does come next?
3: Well, there are three people that are looked at as uh, possible uh, replacements, and they all name John. One is Cornyn, one is Thune, and one is Barrasso. Uh, Barrasso is the most uh, conservative. Uh, Thune is considered the most moderate. Cornyn. Is uh, is out of leadership right now, but the number two and the number three people in the Republican Party have both endorsed Donald Trump. So I don't know how moderate you can be if you are, you know, a MAGA supporter. But what do I know?
0: So you don't see any change, any direction, any? This isn't a turning point in any way.
3: No, there's no turning point. Well, if there's a turning point, it would be leaning more into the right than than uh, McConnell. Because for all McConnell's foibles. He was, he learned the swamp of DC very well. He was a a swamp creature and believe it or not, he supported democracy. He liked to cruise around and gather his own power, but he was comfortable in the pond or the swamp that we call democracy. So to him, uh, Putin is the enemy. He's worse or as bad as the Soviet union. And he was a Reaganite and he has never supported, uh, the Soviet union McConnell, And he was also the one who wanted to supply aid to Ukraine because of that. He he has stood up for that part, and for that I give him credit. But for the rest of it, it's all about um, his power, who he is, and he's created an entire uh, host of, of politicians in the Republican Party that took his lead. And they're not as smart as him, but they are more vindictive and cunning, and they got him. The nice thing about it is, since they're not as smart, it won't take 40 years to dislodge
0: them from power. (laughs) Brian J. Karam with us, journalist, author. Brian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. Talk to you soon. The latest Leger poll on the economy and federal politics shows that, uh, well, the obvious, more of the same. (laughs) To talk about this, Andrew N's Executive Vice President Central Canada for Leger. He's back. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
4: Hey, uh, Scott. Good to be good to be back. Yesterday, we were chatting about uh, housing affordability, and I guess today we'll talk about some of the implications that it has on the political scene.
0: So, how has? Or let me ask it this way: What stands out to this? Because we've seen this trending through the summer that the conservatives are going up, and obviously the liberals are going down and, and such.
4: Does anything stand out in this set of polls? Uh, I'd say two things caught my eye in this set of polls. Um, Two different questions. One on the on the ballot itself, on the vote preference. Um, our Leger poll found uh, that in British Columbia and in Ontario, two really important provinces in terms of uh, in terms of you know winning elections. There's a lot of seats in both those provinces. Uh, the Conservatives are really starting to consolidate their, their lead in, the, in those particular provinces. And I think that has to be, um, that has to be I mean, obviously good news if, if you're a Conservative supporter and, and probably troubling if you're the uh, Prime Minister or the uh, third party Jagmeet Singh. The other thing that caught my eye was we have a question in our poll, Scott, that we ask people to identify, you know, of the party leader's Listed below, who would make, in your opinion, the best prime minister? And <clears throat> not surprising, uh, you know, the, the the front runner Pierre Polyev uh, surfaces at the top. But what's what caught my attention was among the eighteen to thirty four year old voters. So that that those younger adults. Uh, only 13% identified Justin Trudeau, the current Prime minister. Mm. And if you think back to 2015, it, it was that age group that really propelled him to office at the time. I mean that that youthful, that hope uh, kind of uh, uh, you know conversation that he was starting and times have changed. Uh,
0: i remember that and and obviously uh the millennial vote is going to play a big factor in the next election and they seem to be changing their minds and and yeah. i remember when talking you know about uh, party politics and such it was you know the conservative or sorry the liberals also had way more females but that's sort of uh, the the millennials are breaking apart that old model
4: yeah it it is starting. I mean there there's still a little bit of a trend of of uh you know the conservatives doing doing better amongst males and yeah. and not quite as good but but it's really starting to um you know break uh you know break down. Um Justin Trudeau doesn't have the same kind of you know same kind of uh you know sway amongst the uh, you know those voter groups. He he really honestly when you look at things it's really difficult to to identify a this is his, you know, sort of bedrock voter group yeah. that'll never leave him. and you can build from there. And I think that's the troubling thing for some of those uh, for some liberal strategists. Are they they're realizing that the foundation to, to build a you know a winning campaign from is is getting a little precarious?
0: Are you surprised about the numbers in BC uh, that conservatives are are showing improvement there, considering you know, NDP and then before that, Liberal government.
4: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, the, you know, the old Liberal government in BC was always a little bit of a, a, a kind of a quasi uh, entrepreneur, yeah. small C conservative government. But but yeah, the NDP government, and by all counts, it's it's uh, it's it's a fairly popular government. Uh, and I think you just uh, again, you see, first of all, you're seeing it where you see in some provinces where there is a division where. I think, quite frankly, some of the messaging from Pierre Polyev is is uh, hitting home with some rank and file working class. Dare I say, union membership in British Columbia, like you know, affordability. Uh, some yeah. of his messaging, I think, on housing and and his uh, his sort of you know frustrations and some of his uh, you know commentary on on the housing market is probably hitting home in. In, uh, in British Columbia, where it's a, a fairly acute uh, situation right now.
0: Obviously, Pharmacare just announced on Friday. So I guess nothing would be in for that as yet. But do you think the Pharmacare uh, announcement is going to sway any of this?
4: I I would be surprised. Um, you know, look, healthcare is an important issue, um, you know, kind of up there in the top three, typically, uh, you know, amongst the, the top of mind with Canadians. But when you When you get into healthcare, like pharmacare, um, drug affordability is not the driving force behind the concerns when it comes to healthcare. It's really about access, access to treatment, access to family doctors, Mm -hmm. wait times in in emergency wards. Pharmacare is way down. And uh, so I suspect uh, even as the details of this pharmacare uh, agreement come out. I, I would be quite surprised if it actually had um, real uh, political implications on on how people are going to vote. Andrew ends with us, Executive Vice President, Central
0: Canada for Leger, the latest from them on the mindset of the country. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Absolutely. You too, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
2: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News,
5: today's talk. 900
0: CHML. I think the online harms bill is a lot like Pharmacare. Uh, Some think it's a good idea, but we really don't know anything about it or how it works or what it does or how it's going to do what it says. Uh, Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's here now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. First of all, tell us what the online harms bill
6: is, and do you think it will work? Well, I mean, we're all familiar with the tragic cases of Amanda Todd, Reta uh, yep. Parsons. Of course, they both took their own lives after being victimized, sex, uh, sex exploited online. Um, and this law is designed to protect uh, all of us, but particularly kids. From that kind of exploitation online, so any content that victimizes a child sexually, or that re-victimizes a survivor, that's used to bully a child, induces a child to harm themselves, uh, or beyond just kids, uh, you know, incites extremism or terrorism, incites violence, uh, foments hatred, um, intimate content communicated without consent, of course, you know, so revenge porn, uh, deepfakes, mm-hmm. uh, anything like that. It is in scope of this of this law, because right now, uh, it is kind of a free-for-all. Every platform, if you open up the Facebook app, it has its own way of dealing with it, but that's entirely up to the company that owns it, Meta, um, not subject to any law, not subject, subject to any consequences if they decide to change it or if they don't live up to their ideals. So this ensures that everyone plays ball, no matter what platform it is. And it has some very significant consequences for companies that refuse. To comply, upwards to fines that touching ten million dollars Canadian, uh, or six percent of global annual revenues. It's 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 a punishment that bites. It'll actually hurt them. They won't just be able to write a check and walk away and continue as they have. So. Basically, it takes the wild west that the internet is right now, that it's a very threatening place for children, and it tries to make it somewhat less threatening by holding these platforms more accountable than they have been held in the past. That's kind of where we're going. But like you said in the intro... Because it's just been introduced, because it still has to go through multiple layers of committee and readings and negotiations back and forth before it's actually enacted and you know becomes the law of the land, right now it's just a bill, um, we don't really have a whole lot of detail. There's a lot of framework there, uh, but exactly how it'll be enforced, exactly what it'll look like on the ground, well, we're still waiting to see those details.
0: I don't think anybody would uh, disagree, Carmi, with what you said about who needs to be protected and why, and and how this has gone the way of the Wild West and such. But we've also saw a fight between government and social media on 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 news sites and so far and so on and so forth. And I I, I don't know if we really gained any traction there. So at the end of the day, will this change anything? Will these will these companies react? Will we end up with a better space?
6: as a result of this does it it's have a good teeth? question and if we're looking for a magic bullet solution like we enact one law and that solves the problem the short answer is no that'll never happen no single law can ever achieve that much it's another tool in the toolkit of society to help achieve better balance in the digital space allow us to to do what we usually do in the digital space and and lead our lives there without being exposed to too much risk and of course protecting are most vulnerable, particularly our kids. Um, But you know, we've seen before, as you said, the Online News Act, the Online Streaming Act, big tech doesn't like being told by government what to do. They see more regulation as an impediment to their business. It slows them down. It makes it more costly to do what they do. Um, It basically muddies the waters. It affects their competitiveness. They hate it. Uh, We saw Meta, for example, take its ball and go home with the Online News Act. You can't get Canadian content online because they told the government Take your ball. You know, we're taking our ball and we're going home. So Mm -hmm. I expected a similar response here. Uh, We haven't really seen a whole lot of uh, response since the bill was first introduced. But Meta did uh, release a a very short note, uh, essentially saying in their statement that they welcome action by the government to make uh, platforms safer for kids. And they look forward to working with the government on this. So uh, a little less negative than I thought it would be. Uh, it's a little more encouraging, uh, It's somewhat more positive. But at the same time, there's a lot of history here and technology companies have traditionally not been uh, really uh, engaged partners with the government on legislation like this. So I'm going to reserve judgment uh, over the next few months. We'll see how it goes. Uh, But I will expect that they will push back uh, on some of the provisions, especially as the details themselves get ironed out. And as those negotiations continue, I don't expect they'll take this sitting down because certainly they don't want this to become a global thing where every single country where they do business, it becomes harder to do business for them. Do you think there's a chance
0: that they will just take the ball and go somewhere else? Say, okay, we, I, don't, we, you I don't know think we're not they playing by these to, uh,
6: and I think there's there's too much money to be made from advertising within the Canadian markets. Uh and 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 I think uh it, it would it would be to their detriment if they uh piled this on. I think it's also a, a different look for them. Um there's ample evidence and it continues to pile up that kids are uh under threat on these platforms. And these platforms have put profitability uh, over safety. Uh, again and again and again, the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, has made that abundantly clear. Um, you know, had uh, smoking gun evidence that she took with her when she left the company. So um, I think it's it's one thing if you decide not to, not to carry news on your platform. It's quite another if you fight back against the government that is trying to make things safer for kids. Uh, nobody wants to be on the side of an argument that essentially puts kids at greater threat. Uh, and I think the social media platforms, the web platforms, the streaming platforms have taken this argument as far as they can. And if they fight too hard, uh, they they will end up with a pretty significant black eye. I think most of us are fed up with big tech's attitude toward uh, online digital safety. And I think the line gets drawn here. Uh, what is the downside of this?
0: Is there? Is it all positive? What's, uh, what's the challenges? Is some say it's an overreaction.
6: Yeah, there's, I mean, certainly the the critics of uh this law, this proposed law, have said that it is a threat to freedom of expression online. Uh they warn of government overreach, saying that the federal government is trying to censor us, decide what we can and cannot say online. Um, and you know, again, uh, I think that makes for for fun political headlines, but that is not the case here. Uh, you know, it, I I think there's a there's all we, we need to understand and we need to negotiate what those lines are are how far can you go before Mm. you are in the zone of uh bullying behavior uh incitement of violence you know what are those limitations on content? And I think a law like this helps make those lines less blurry, defines them more clearly for all of us. And so, you know, it's a it's a balancing act. You have to protect the most vulnerable, but you also can't infringe on freedom of expression. And that's what's going to be negotiated over the next little while to uh, to accuse uh, the government of uh, censorship when you don't even know the details of this law. And you haven't participated in those negotiations, to me, uh, is put in the carpet before the horse. I say, let's wait and see how this process plays out, but let's keep that visible because that balance is going to be absolutely crucial to ensuring this law does what it does without hindering Canadians' ability to live in the digital space.
0: Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Always fascinating, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate being here, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The latest out of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine now entering its third year. Think about that supposed to be like three days. Uh, French President Macron won't rule out sending troops into Ukraine. Didn't we have this discussion at the beginning of this? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, here now. Uh, Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I am Scott Hope you are
0: too. is this are we at a turning point here where it's either fish or cut bait? I mean we're entering the third year, uh, and we've talked about and I'm sure I've mentioned it with you over the uh, years as well that you know we keep doing little bits and little bits and li- like are we just going to go in and get this job done? Or are we going to drag this out till uh, somebody loses
5: I think it's going to be a protracted conflict until somebody uh, clearly loses now my hope is it's uh, it's going to be russia but that's uh, that's not by any means clear uh there are some interesting things about uh, macron mentioning the possibility of sending western troops uh first of all western troops are already in ukraine doing training doing demining and there are some canadians there as well mm-hmm. but no combat troops no uh, no troops near the hostilities and nato has uh, fairly consistently held to that as uh, as one of its red lines in terms of its commitment to ukraine now we can do a lot more to help ukraine without crossing that red line uh, but we're not Uh, i think particularly because there are some signs of cracks in western solidarity macron may have been trying to signal western resolve but if he if that was his intent he misread the room because his suggestion has been roundly rejected by almost, I think, I th- actually, I think all of the other NATO members. So are we actually so doing? He's actually harmed the appearance of NATO solidarity.
0: So are we helping or are we delaying the inevitable here?
5: Well, I don't think we are uh, delaying the inevitable. I think Ukraine could uh, could do uh, a lot better if it could count on uh, timely and adequate supplies of uh, of Western weaponry. If, uh, if that came in, if the U.S. Congress got its act together, if Canada was able to uh, step up our uh, the pace of our delivery of weapons, that would all help, uh, and it would make a sizable difference without requiring Western combat troops.
0: However, Jack, nothing appears to be changing. This seems to be the same day in and day out. Is that accurate?
5: Uh, it's it's accurate to some extent, but it's it's rather in the nature of a protracted conflict, uh, particularly in the winter months. Now, the Ukrainians did have some success with their offensive a few months back. Uh, the front lines have largely stabilized at the moment, but uh, the shortages of resources are constraining the Europeans. I mean, last weekend, President Zelensky indicated that he would had to withdraw from uh, Avdivka because it was short of ammunition and shells. Uh, this is a problem.
0: Uh, what would constitute a, a a a russian uh defeat what what does ukraine have to do to say we won how far are we from that is that realistic
5: well we have to inflict losses on the putin regime sufficient to uh make putin conclude that the uh, the game simply the game simply isn't worth a candle uh, that's a possibility, but we are quite far from it. We are inflicting substantial losses on Russian forces. We could do more, as I said, if we armed Ukraine more efficiently. Uh, there's another element of this, too, though. Macron may also be bidding for French leadership of Europe. I mean, for quite a few years, he's been complaining that, uh, that NATO is brain dead. He said that back in 2019, and he has long advocated a European defense built more on, on Europe itself, on the grounds that the American security guarantee simply isn't reliable. That's an argument that may have some traction, particularly with the prospect of Donald Trump's return to the White House.
0: Is it inaccurate to say that it appears that Russia is winning that protracted, long, drawn-out waiting game?
5: Well, Russia is suffering substantial losses. Its military capabilities have been significantly degraded. Ukraine is actually doing better militarily than just looking at the stability of the front lines would suggest. Mm-hmm. But um, the the key to this is going to be turning up the uh, the price for uh, on the on this aggression for Putin. Uh,
0: are you confident that we will the Western world turn up the aggression as we enter the third year?
5: Uh, I wish I were more confident. As I said, there are dismaying cracks in Western solidarity, and if Donald Trump becomes president again at the, uh, the start of next year, uh, Ukraine uh, can expect to be sold down the river to Putin, and NATO will indeed be uh, a dead letter. Even if the United States does not formally withdraw from it, its, uh, its security guarantees will, uh, will be proven to be hollow
0: uh are is russia still friends with donald trump uh why does he seem to love them do they have something on him
5: i don't know what they have on him i've speculated about that there are all sorts of internet memes about that either he has uh, uh something on trump or trump genuinely feels an affinity for him i mean there was a, a story recently uh the last day or two a former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said that when, uh, when Trump was around Putin, he would act like a, a 12-year-old boy meeting a football star. Hmm. So he's, <laughs> uh, he's got a bit of a man crush on Putin. They're practically sending each other valentine, uh, whatever the logic is, uh, and, uh, and that would spell real trouble in the event of uh, a Trump restoration.
0: Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, fascinating. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
5: You too, Scott. Take care.
0: Let's bring in John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Lots to talk about, including uh, the great Stony Creek parking lot versus housing debate. And, you know, to me, as I've said before, I just find it absolutely astounding that we're here and that a compromise cannot be found and why we can't do both instead of one or the other, and also interviewing another counselor today, and we can't get a tower built because of a heritage church designation, which may be coming. So where do you build? I don't know. John Bass, publisher of the Bay Observer Now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're well.
7: Yeah, I'm fine. Um, you know, the, I think the answer is that, that if the goal is to build affordable housing in Stony Creek then I think a compromise is quite possible. But if the goal is uh, really a war on the car via a war on parking lots, then Hmm. maybe not. But uh, there's definitely alternatives. There's definitely a way of getting affordable housing built on public land in Stony Creek uh, without uh, necessarily uh, going through this parking lot fight, which is kind of reach ridiculous uh, levels of uh, vitriol. People are starting to make themselves look really silly. Uh, have
0: you heard the word compromise much in this discussion, John?
7: Uh, no, no. And and you were hearing compromise less and less with this city hall. Mm. The fact that this thing was defeated on an 8-8 vote pretty much tells you what's happened here in uh, Hamilton. Yeah. Um, we have a deeply divided council on, uh, along ideological lines, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, the, the level of uh, bullying and name-calling and finger-wagging uh, associated with this uh, particular issue is, uh, you know, you sometimes you, you wonder if it can get any worse, and uh, uh, somehow in the last few days it manages to have done that. So it, it was supposed to come up for council today, And, uh, of course, because of the cyber crash, uh, Mm -hmm. they had to defer most everything. So this, uh, you know, the social media campaign could drag on for quite a while yet. Um, Is it asking too much
0: to say we want both? Is it asking too much to say we don't want either or? I don't want it this. I don't want it that. I don't want the status quo. I don't want this. We want both. Is that asking too much from
7: the citizens I don't, to- I don't think so Scott because uh, while everybody was uh, tearing their hair out over the last week and a half um Scott uh, uh Todd White who is a trustee uh, for Stony Creek uh, with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board he he made a proposal which was unanimously accepted at his board meeting that they revive um uh, an affordable housing project that he was backing uh, several years ago. It, essentially, it involves uh, the uh, the old Lake Avenue School and the Riverdale Community Center, which are ironically on Lake Avenue, but they are uh, maybe half a kilometer or more away from the, the proposed parking lots. And uh, he had a plan uh, bubbling away right up until the last provincial election to put eight stories of affordable housing on that site, along with uh, a food bank and some community services. There's already uh, a public recreation center there. And uh, he was getting some traction with it. So he went back to his count- to his uh, board uh, now that he's been reelected. And uh, they like the idea and he's been authorized or the board's been authorized to, to restart talks with the city of Hamilton uh, and to see if it's possible to revive that project. And there we would get roughly the same number, maybe even more affordable housing built on a site that has got a lot of space. It's got other amenities nearby, hmm. a, a much more suitable site. So I, I hope uh, that that can be allowed to go forward. There's no shortage of ideas or chatter. What there is is
0: a shortage of results, a shortage of action. It seems, John, whenever we talk about this site, it's like, well... Let's look over here. Let, let's look over here to this one we had the other day that we dropped the ball on that we didn't really. And and you know, and whether it's a church, whether it's a parking lot, what, what? Well, why don't we look over here? And it's sort of a distraction that takes the attention away from the project at hand. And again, at the end of the day,
7: five years from now, will anything have changed? Well, I try to be optimistic. I'm I'm hopeful. I I did hear um in the last couple of days that the the Vrancor uh, affordable housing project may still have legs, so I'm hopeful that that'll happen. And I think at the end of the day, you mentioned the Philpott Church project. It may be necessary for us to waste uh, you know tens of thousands of dollars in front of the land tribunal, but I think at the end of the day, the developer will probably be allowed to build that project, That's 750 units. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it's not pretty how we get there, but uh, I, I think there are some prospects to get uh, both affordable and market level and all different kinds of housing going. Because I think the other thing, we we are focusing on affordable housing because that's where the greatest need is, but we just need a whole lot of housing. And, uh, you know, there there are people who have jobs that are having trouble finding housing. So, there absolutely has to be more cooperation you're absolutely right about that scott john Bass, with us, publisher of the bay observer talking about all
0: things hamilton and getting stuck on one we're gonna have to chat again john thank you for the time be well
7: my pleasure
0: when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's news. Today's top 900. CXM. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to keep up with uh, the scandals, the inquiries, and the committees that are going on. Um, remember SNC Lavalin and that whole thing. Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, Jane Philpott, that whole era. <laughs> It seems like it's a lifetime ago. Apparently, the RCMP did not interview the prime minister before concluding that there was insufficient evidence to substantiate a criminal offense in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Top officials confirmed in a House of Commons committee hearing on Tuesday. Does that matter? Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's here now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Do we have Duff? Yes, how are you? Duff, it is great to have you here. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. How significant is it that the Prime Minister did not uh, testify? The RCMP did not interview the Prime Minister. Uh, How important was that necessary?
8: It was very necessary. I mean, he was the prime person that the Ethics Commissioner found directed all of the other um, members of Cabinet and Prime Minister office staff and also. people from um, the Privy Council Office, Privy Council Clerk, uh, to be pressuring the Attorney General. So, he was the director of the scheme, uh, the pressure of the Attorney General to stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin, and it's just stunning that the RCMP did not even interview him. And many of the other answers that the RCMP Commissioner gave to the House Ethics Committee Yesterday, just raised more questions about how negligently bad and weak their investigation was.
0: So why didn't the RCMP interview the Prime Minister?
8: Well, with everyone involved, other than just three people that were interviewed, um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who was obviously making the allegations of obstruction, and a couple of others, uh, they just relied on public statements that they made and what the Ethics Commissioner reported in his report on the situation. But of course, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, we, we obstructed justice. Uh, every yeah. statement they made said they didn't do anything wrong. So it's just crazy for the RCMP to just rely on that as opposed to gathering evidence. And they didn't even try to get secret cabinet documents that, that the cabinet was uh, withholding from them. Uh, They didn't even try to get those and then get that evidence and then sit down and question them with the evidence in hand. Uh, Instead, they just relied on everyone saying we're innocent. Of course, they're going to say they're innocent. They're not going to say they're guilty.
5: Hmm.
0: Boy, uh, Duff, it's really hard to even keep up if, um, y- y- if you're in the business, let alone a citizen. Um, is this still resonating? Do you think the, the public is still aware of S- S- SNC-Lavalin? And like, where does this go now? What happens now?
8: Well, um, we are still waiting for uh, more than 2,200 pages of investigation records that the RCMP is illegally withholding. And hiding. Uh, They should have disclosed it long ago. We requested them in July 2022. It's now uh, would-be March tomorrow, but it's a leap year, so we march in a couple of days, 2024. (laughs) And uh, the committee yesterday asked for more detailed documents showing why the RCMP waited from March 2021, when the investigation was over, until January 2023 to make the decision not to prosecute anyone. I mean, that's almost two years. So we've waited, waited two years for uh, records. Uh, they had a two-year delay in the investigation. Those records are going to go to the committee. Hopefully, the committee will make them public. We'll get the 2,200 pages public. And then we'll see uh, about where we go from there. I think it seems to be pointing to that we need another police force and a separate set of prosecutors who are not in the RCMP, where the commissioner and the top officers of the RCMP are also appointed by and and, and uh, report to and also serve at the pleasure of the Trudeau cabinet. I think we need another police force and this different set of prosecutors to review the evidence and, and um, make more uh impartial and also better decisions about whether anyone should be prosecuted
0: uh it seemed well maybe it doesn't seem odd Uh, there's accusations of interference on the snc lavalin case that's how we got here now there's new accusations about the investigation itself and the rcmp what does that say
8: and also uh more information coming out about how the RCMP rolled over on the Aga Khan yeah. uh, gift investigation, the gift of the uh, trip to the Aga Khan's private island that he gave to the Trudeau family and and friends of the uh, Trudeau family. Um, you know, the RCMP commissioner, the deputy commissioner, the heads of every division of the RCMP are chosen by the ruling party cabinet and serve at their pleasure. That's dangerous. Yeah, That's how you get lapdogs, not watchdogs. And they enforce the criminal code, including many anti-corruption provisions that apply to politicians and their lobbyist friends. And we simply cannot have these people chosen by the, the politicians who they're watching over. I mean, everyone would choose someone who's favorable. And there's a lot of questions for the former commissioner, Brenda Lucky, who was actually the commissioner when this whole investigation was going on. She was mm. not before the committee yesterday. She should be called by the committee because the commissioner who was the current commissioner said, I can't answer that question. I wasn't the person in charge at the time. He said that more than once. She needs to be called as a witness. And it's surprising that the committee did not already put her on the list of witnesses to be called because she's the one who knows what happened. And so we'll get these internal documents. She should testify. And I think it all points to the need for a much more independent uh, federal police force uh, and a specialized anti-corruption police force that actually does its job instead of rolling over like a lapdog.
0: How does the RFCMP react to their lack of due diligence or, as you call it, being a lapdog? What's their reaction to this?
8: They didn't have an answer as to why they didn't talk to the prime minister. They, mm. they were just asked, what did you talk to the prime minister about both the SNC lab and also the gifts from the Aga Khan. And did you interview the prime minister? No. Why not? We had the public statements from the prime minister already. I mean, <laughs> yes, but you, you still go and interview the, the primary suspect. I mean, to just say, Oh, well, this person was interviewed by a media or made a statement at a committee. That's enough. We're not going to do our own investigation. Just crazy. And it just, they really rolled over and they don't have an answer. There's so many questions that still remain. You know, why did they try and bury it by delaying their final decision by, for two years? during which a, a federal election occurred. Jeff uh, Conacher they, with us. So we'll see. We'll Duff happens. Conacher keep with us, updated.
0: co-founder of Democracy Watch. The RCMP did not interview the Prime Minister before concluding there was not uh, there was uh, insufficient evidence to substantiate a criminal offense in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Duff, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Be well.
8: Thank you. I'll keep
2: you updated. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening
2: to the Hamilton Today podcast.
0: You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.